Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. And we may even consider you for joining us on the show to talk about the various topical matters and issues of the day. Um, I'm pleased to say that joining us on today's programme on what is another warm summer morning here in the capital is Paul Baldwin. Paul is the technical manager at Telford Stage Schools, an organisation formed in February 1999 with a vision to make quality performing arts tuition and performance opportunities available to everyone. Uh, Paul, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Good morning, Scott. It's my pleasure. It's a pleasure for us having you with us as well, Paul. Certainly is a lovely warm day for it again. Um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing the elephants in the room here, and that's the fact that as we record this podcast in late July 2021, of course, we're at a point in time where social restrictions relating to the COVID-19 situation have gone in England for the time being, but we're still somewhat within the grip of the pandemic, and that's now been the case for the best part of 16 months, hasn't it? It's had a significant impact on your industry, um, and to what extent has it affected things for you by and large? It's been a crazy sort of 18 months. Um, Obviously, our concerns are those and foremost for the children that that come into our, our buildings, into our care. For the Saturday morning, it was those our, our biggest agenda was keeping our staff safe and also giving a, a safe environment for the children. Obviously, things were taken out of our control a number of times with the different lockdowns. Um, we, we then restarted again last nearly a year ago, last September after the initial lockdown. That was cut short um, by after October. So again, it, it's been a, bit of a crazy time, but. From our point of view, it's been, A, very important to support our staff and make sure that our staff felt that they were working in a, a safe environment with a number of children in their care. But equally, it was to, to enable us to and the staff to give confidence to the children that were coming to see us because they, they'd had quite a hard time as well. Mm. I can imagine so, yeah, and um, it's had a real knock-on effect, hasn't it, for mental health and well-being, and part of that is actually making relevant changes once you are sort of operating again in some capacity to sort of keep COVID safe. So what are sort of the practical steps that you've taken to try and sort of alleviate some of those anxieties and make sure that people were confident in sort of coming back into classes and um, like kind of operating that way? Well, well, after the first lock, well, during the first lockdown, we really had to rethink everything we did. Um, we're quite, quite a cash-based business, so it was even was 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 I or, or one of the other members of staff comfortable just taking money? A lot of shops had gone purely over to um, card payments. Mm. We'd we'd literally instigated when we when we went back last September. We instigated a payment method. Uh, where every every child brought their money in in a, a separate little envelope, and we we put it into sort of honesty boxes, and tried to do it that way. So it was in a, it was in a safe, controlled environment. We also asked all of our parents to sign a, basically a little COVID contract, just to say they wouldn't bring the the child to any classes if the child was unwell. 
to afford social distancing, to wear a mask when they came into the building. Uh, and the same with our teachers we gave each one of our teachers their own all, um, PPE pack with masks, with gloves, with gel, everything we could do to make everybody feel safe. And going back down to the children, a lot of children after the initial lockdown were quite quite clingy with their parents. We uh, we did lose a few students. They, they just weren't ready to come back. They, they'd sort of got used to being at home so much. Um, but it, it, it's, it's a case of fostering that sort of confidence in, in our business and, and giving that space to the students, to the parents, to see that everything was safe. We were doing everything we could to make it a safe environment for their children to come visit for up to three hours on a Saturday. Yeah, because I can imagine that like parents, just like they did with their children returning to school, had a bit of anxiety about sort of letting them come back in and sort of mix together as well. So it's about alleviating those concerns. And I can imagine sort of having to navigate all of that and deal with all of these collective issues. It's probably sort of taught you an awful lot as an organisation, hasn't it? How to sort of crisis manage and get around things like this. It literally was that. And again, there's no rule book to, to follow at times. Mm. It was, what what can we do? What can we do to make people confident to bring their child back into our, our care for a Saturday morning? And, and it was little things as well. We staggered the start and finishes of, of the different age classes. So again, there wasn't a group of parents all arriving at the same time. Um, weather permitting, we had the parents line up outside and, and we'd bring the, the class of children back to the parents. So again, it was... It was, it was trying to follow the general COVID guidelines of being out in the open air, uh, keeping everybody segregated. Obviously, all the members of staff and, and all the parents were wearing masks. And it was, it was actually quite weird from our point of view. Is we didn't recognise a lot of the parents because, again, you know, you see them once a week and then you, you put the equation, we haven't seen them for sort of six, several months, and then everybody's wearing a mask. It was from our point of view, we made sure mm-hmm. that our staff, we all wore the, the branded T-shirts that we wear. So, you know, it was it was, it was was quite weird even from that point of view. How would a new parent bring their child for the first time know that we were Telford Stage School? It was, it was all that sort of interaction we, we, we also put into place that we wouldn't have any, any drop-in students. Everybody would need to tell us in advance of their attendance. It was just so we did everything we could to make sure that we had we tried to keep the upper hand and, and, and touch wood. We, everything worked really well. Yeah, certainly seems it. And um, just because I've heard this from a few sort of business leaders in the hospitality industry, they've been really waiting for sort of last week's news to sort of relax all of the restrictions and sort of go back to full capacity where sort of social distancing and other restrictions aren't required. Is there that same sort of haste with, yourselves are, are you looking now to sort of maximize this opportunity and like sort of operate under that kind of framework or is there still that little bit more caution about letting everything back in full throttle and just trying to keep people safe for just that little while longer i, I think caution is still a very key word um obviously from our point of view as employees as we, we could try to keep our staff safe um, I, I think we're, we're close to the summer holidays at the moment. So when we go back in September, I think because we're going to be in an uh, internal environment, I think masks will still be with us from a classroom point of view, still keeping the stu- 
children at reasonable distance. One, one of the knock-on effects that did happen over the, the initial first couple of lockdowns, we had to stop one of our classes. We run a, a preschool group, three to five-year-olds. We literally had to stop that class because we didn't feel safe because you, you can't social distance from a three-year-old when you're learning them to, to dance and to, to enjoy drama. You can't, you can't keep that social distance. We have to stop the three- to five-year-old class. In fact, we will be looking to start that back again in September when hopefully everything's clear. Yeah, hopefully so. And um, I think it just goes to show, doesn't it, that sort of remote classes and sort of online education in your industry it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach isn't it i think sometimes you need to have that sort of human social contact you need to be able to sort of coach people on the spot don't you and that's the important bit now just sort of kind of trying to bring that back in a safe way yeah whilst over the the lockdown periods we did we 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 didn't fully explore the online classes, I'll be honest with you. We did have one, we had a dance class going for one of our teenage groups, and that worked really well. But the, the, the actual joy you see on a child's face when they're, they're dancing, they're singing, they're engaging in drama, you know, you can't, you can't bottle that joy. You can't bottle that, that excitement. And, and, and to see that returning over the last couple of months when the classes have restarted, it's great to see that excitement. And, and that's what, to be honest with you, that's what made it worthwhile for the last 22 years of running Telford Stage School. A lot of it is just seeing that joy and that excitement and, and seeing a child progress and, and, and get that confidence and, and, and seeing their, their little friendship groups. It, it's, it's, it's a great environment and hopefully we've come out the other side of COVID with it now. Yeah, and I can imagine that in the darkest of times over the last 16 months, it's that sort of joy, that satisfaction, that real coaching and learning, helping develop a child in their life and following their passion that really makes it worthwhile and what really sort of motivates and inspires you to keep going, isn't it? It, it certainly is, and it's certainly from our point of view, uh, leading our staff as well. It, it's mm. ensuring the staff kept COVID compliant, ensuring that... You know, it's very hard to keep children at a social distance, especially in the dance routine. But it, it worked. Um, we we sort of we stopped the, we stopped the majority of the singing. We're very lucky at the venue we use. There's there's outside spaces. So weather permitting, we were actually outside doing singing classes at a social distance spacing. So that worked well. Um, but no, a, a lot of it is from our point of view. It's it's seeing a child come in holding on to their parents, being shy. And then as, as the weeks go on, seeing that child get the confidence, get the excitement, get, get that pleasure that performing arts can give. It is, isn't it? It's going to be so important sort of as really cherishing that as we still have it over the course of the year, the next few months, because we don't know what's going to happen with the restrictions, whether they're going to come back, whether we're going to be deprived of this again. Of course, God willing, fingers crossed, that's not going to happen. Um, and I think it, just sort of shows us just kind of how much we value those things that are important to us, doesn't it? We've learned so much about not taking things for granted during this pandemic, including the connections we have with each other. But I think in some ways, even being apart by the way we've all rallied together to just sort of keep things ticking over, I think we've almost grown closer despite the distance between us, haven't we, in a way? Oh, certainly. And it, it, it's, there's plenty of phrases that sort of, 
bring that to mind. It's that Churchill spirit that we were all in it together. We literally were all in it together, and it was there. Uh, it was great. Again, when the parents came back, the parents were so so pleased to see that we'd opened because again, I think a lot of parents were concerned about the, their, their children being stuck at home, being homeschooled. They were, they were missing out on all these different friendship groups. Mm. And I, I think a lot of that, and perhaps even to get their Saturday mornings back, the parents, um, there, there was so much excitement, so much pleasure in, in you could only see their eyes because of the mass, but everybody was so keen that we, we, we get back to that little sort of normality. Uh, and, and, and let's hope it's uh, going to be a long-lived normality. Let's certainly hope so. Exactly right. And um, we'll keep our fingers crossed. We'll see what comes out of the uh, the next uh, few months with the lifting of restrictions. And let's just hope, of course, that it does end up transpiring to go really well and we don't have to see a comeback of that in the autumn. Um, but over the next few months, if we sort of did pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment, Paul, and can look into the future, um, what are some of your sort of key priorities at TSS over the next sort of year or so? And what are you really hoping to achieve all being well with the COVID situation? Our priority is, 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 is for everything to get back to normal. Um, ideally, I, I won't lie about it, we, we did lose a number of students over the over the COVID-enforced break because they, with children, when they get out of any sort of habit, you know, parents create the habit of bringing their children every Saturday morning to us as well. So we want to continue to build our presence, build up our classes again to uh, the level so we're pre-COVID. Um, and, you know, obviously we, we, we've got Christmas already in the future. We'll be starting back in September and going straight into um, rehearsals for pantomimes, which, which is the TSS additional way to to celebrate christmas and let's hope as well that they can have a decent crowd down there as well and there's not going to be sort of too much in terms of restrictions uh, sort of lasting there too exactly uh we i dread to think where we're going to be in december when when all that comes around because again we're back be back into the the winter and mm. um, but yeah it, it's really great it'd be great to get back to that some sort of normality it'd be great to get back to the the chaos and fun of what a pantomime can be, seeing mm. the joys on the parents' faces, applauding, cheering on their child performing in front of them, sometimes for the first time. Uh, it, it's just, a, it's a great spirit. It's a great way to finish finish this crazy year off. It would be, wouldn't it? Just having that taste of normality right in the festive season. It would be so, so fantastic for all of us, wouldn't it? That little bit of joy, that little bit of release. And let's keep our fingers crossed that we can certainly get that in the latter stages of the year. And uh, wish you all the luck in the world, Paul, and everything that you're doing. And just because of it's been a real eye-opener, just sort of seeing what's been going on in your industry, the challenges that you've had to try and get around. I'd actually quite like sort of closer to the time to maybe catch up and have you back on the show with us just to sort of see where we're at and whether obviously everything can go ahead as planned and just sort of see what we need to do from there. Yeah, that'd be, it'd be great to catch up again, Scott. As, as I said, you know, our next big event, we, we, we start back our classes in earnest in September, same time as, as, as normal schools do, and straight into rehearsing for our Christmas pantomimes and our Christmas shows. And it, 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 it's, it's just, it's, it's a magical time of year, but it makes it so much more magical seeing children perform the joy on their faces and equally the joy on their parents, grandparents' faces, seeing their child 
having so much fun and giving everybody something to be happy and proud about. Exactly. And I think we all need that positivity and that real boost of morale, don't we, after two very, very difficult years. Um, Thank you again, Paul. It's been a real pleasure having you with us on the show today. And lastly, just before we do depart, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world as well. Thank you so much, Scott, for giving me a chance to have this conversation. And equally, please stay safe as possible, Scott. And I'd extend that as well to all of the listeners tuning into today's podcast. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others, even with the lifting of restrictions, because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this quite trying period. Um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Paul Baldwin, Technical Manager at Telford Stage Schools, onto the programme today. Um, next up on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, a former professional footballer who is, of course, most well-known for being the only man in history to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup. Of course, he famously did that in 1966 on that famous day at Wembley when England beat the West Germans 4-2 after extra time to lift the Jules Rimet Trophy. Um, so Jeff will be coming onto the programme to talk about some of the leadership highlights of his career, some of those influential figures that helped build him up as a player and as a person, as well as leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS, who've given so much and sacrificed a great amount during the last 16 months to help keep us safe. That will be coming up on the programme next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's uh, nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. 
Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hansfield Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, it, absolutely. Yes, sir. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who are injured almost every day on the t- 
terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, it's very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. 
So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management so you can learn as much from people making mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing today and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, uh, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road. Um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree, where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's just able to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined, this is absolutely true, we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually 
but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to, a, we moved up market to a council house, somewhere in Chelmsford, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, Tell them I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games 
for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him who remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for 
for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate Hey, at West Ham, it was a great time for the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I, was, I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. Completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that 
you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.